Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Our guest today is Victoria Judd, a multi-specialist financing lawyer who advises borrowers and financial institutions on a broad range of transactions, including energy and infrastructure projects, acquisition finance, leveraged finance, restructurings, real estate finance, sustainable finance, and corporate finance. Pretty much every kind of finance. Victoria handles both domestic UK and cross-border debt financings and uses her multilingual English, French, Italian, and Portuguese language skills to facilitate multi-party and multinational negotiations. Welcome to our podcast, Victoria. Thanks, Joel. It's great to be here today. As you know, Victoria, I was based in Europe for 15 years as a finance lawyer, so the topic we're about to discuss is near and dear to me, Brexit and some of its effects on the financial services sector. How about if you kick things off with a brief summary of the current state of play? Sure. Um, four years ago, after we had the Brexit referendum and um, the UK officially decided to leave the European Union, and four years on, we uh, finally did it on the 31st of December 2020. Um, it was very much expect. well, the question was whether or not there'd be a um, Brexit deal at all. And we had a last minute deal that was agreed on the 24th of December. Now that still had to get through um, approval from the 27 member states and the UK parliament, which it finally did on the 30th of December. So with one day to go. So the trade deal that came out of that is the trade and cooperation agreement, which is very much like any other trade agreements in that it has a lot of detail about how we will cooperate going forward, but perhaps not all the details to how that will be done. So key takeaways are things like tariff and quota-free trade in goods to continue um, with, um, and then professional service providers such as doctors and lawyers won't have their credentials automatically recognized um, on both sides of the, um, both sides anymore. But from a financial service perspective, the deal doesn't really address financial services. And um, there are also many other provisions that still need negotiation and fine-tuning. Fine on, um, on financial services, it's expected that there will um, the UK and the EU will agree a memorandum of understanding to establish a framework of cooperation by 31st of March this year. Um, but we really still, still don't know um, what that means. And I guess we're having to look at what the position is from now. So ahead of that expected agreement in March on financial services, what what would you say is the current position? Is it essentially a no deal Brexit? And is there any real likelihood that that could change? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's pretty much a no deal Brexit for financial services. And that's an important point when financial services account for 80% of the UK's GDP. Um, practically speaking, no deal meant um, that ten day within ten days of Brexit, 1.6 trillion US dollars in assets had already left the city of London, along with seven and a half thousand jobs, um, which is quite significant. Um, so what happens is that financial services lost their passporting rights, and really the outstanding question is whether the EU and the UK will agree that there can be equivalence so that you can still have some element of um, crossing those borders and recognition of the regulations between the EU 
and the UK to say that those standards are are the same. At the moment, the UK has already recognised the EU equivalents on many rules with just a few exceptions, such as onshoring in relation to MIFID. But Brussels has only granted equivalents for two out of 40 areas. And there are lots more equivalent decision, equivalence decisions to take place. Um, the ones which, the two that fall into those categories are clearing houses um, and some for derivative transactions. What's interesting is actually at the current time, Australia has better equivalence with the EU than the UK. Um, is it likely to change? Um, well, it could change in March with a decision on equivalence, but the the reality is that the EU has decided that that's a decision that it can make on its own, um, at its own discretion as a policy decision. So it really does remain a um, point for discussion at this stage. It seems odd to me that it's such a difficult decision, given that the systems were aligned immediately prior to Brexit. It, it would seem that, that it's a very easy path uh, to make that work out harmoniously. But I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly right. From a technical analysis, um, the, the two regimes are completely equivalent at this stage. They were equivalent you know, prior to 31st of December. And so on 1st of January, they were still equivalent. But really, it's a um, it's a political decision based on possible divergence with EU rules. And so um, the EU is saying, well, we think that you may well diverge. And on that basis, we we're going to sit and watch to see whether you will diverge before we give you um, a granting of equivalence. In any event, you know, we may spend a lot of time discussing this, but equivalents can be withdrawn with 30 days notice from the EU. So they can withhold the sort of, you know, secret uh, weapon, if you like. And then once they give it, they can take it away just as easily. So it, it remains um, you know, perhaps not, not quite a um, solution to, to all issues, if you like. But the main reason for dragging out the decision is that they expect that perhaps they'll be able to get a little bit more <laughs> of um, the business and you know capital markets business in the EU before um, before they actually give more rights to, to the UK, as well as obviously seeing what um, the London market might do and how it might evolve. So that doesn't seem to bode well for London retaining its position as the number one or two dominant financial market in the world. How have banks been reacting to this? So the reality is that banks have had about you know four years warning. Um, so they've been preparing already, and many banks have already moved some of their business to mainland Europe. Um, in fact, what we've been seeing is that even even though there isn't, um, you know, not all banks are doing the exact same thing. Some centres are proving to be um, hotspots for certain areas. So, for instance, investment banks are moving to Frankfurt. Fund and asset management firms seem to be moving to Luxembourg and Dublin. Uh, traders and brokers and new exchanges are going to Amsterdam. And then you've got Paris, which seems to be a mix of everything, because I think the employees and the bankers are actually happy um, to move there. And um, so generally accept that uh, more easily. So if you if you look in terms of number of employees, you've got places like Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, who've already moved uh, between 400 and 500 employees. Um, similar for places like um, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. And then other other banks have moved slightly less employees, say maybe um, 
250 for Credit Suisse or um, 175 for Barclays. So there's definitely some employees have moved, but it's um, not all changing at this stage. And certainly the moves of you know that banks have made have indicated the strengths and weaknesses of the cities um, and that banks are still very much hedging their bets. I think what it indicates is that the competition might well be American <laughs> and Asian. Right. I was just going to ask about that. It sounds like there's definitely some gain in Europe, um, but, but surely uh, it, there could be other markets as well. Yeah. So New York seems to be the top spot. Um, certainly things like trade processing and reporting, um, depositories and custodians ha- have stopped offering services in both the UK and the EU um, due to the complexity of doing so because they don't want to be divided between two jurisdictions. And so New York would be winning out. Similarly, on the derivative, on derivatives, um, in certain credit default swaps and interest rate swaps, then, um, it's expected that approximately 70% of trading could be moved to the US. Um, and that's because you could either do it on your local exchange or you could trade, you can trade with the other party in Singapore and New York. So that's, um, seems to be the winner. So for instance, the U- US now has 23% market share in interest rate rate swap trading, which is increased from 11% in December. So um, that's really doing quite well. And I think there's other areas where that looks, um, it looks like the US could gain. So IPOs, for instance, have not been um, so easy to attract for the London market in recent times. Um, Grubhub's one example, which um, it needed a US listing after, um, so it bought Just Eat and then it needed a US listing. So it got New York and then it then ended up with a European one and London, and it ended up choosing to delist in London. And then I guess the final area is probably choice of law. Um, the judgments aren't quite, um, well, the conventions haven't been signed um, yet, despite uh, intentions to do so. Um, and so there's a question of whether the commercial court and the chancery division in in London become less attractive. Um, one thought is that perhaps arbitration will become more attractive and the other, the alternative expectation is that actually people will still recognize judgments wherever um, wherever they're made because people won't want to say, well, no, um, if we don't recognize your judgment, <laughs> you won't recognize ours. Right. That's really interesting, Victoria. I have one more question for you uh, to conclude. Are you bullish or bearish on London going forward? Well, maybe the accent's a dead giveaway, but I'm definitely bullish on on London. I think um, the choice of la- choice of law is still very attractive. London <laughs> comfortably leads foreign exchange trading. Um, attra- is attracting more fintechs. It's, it's trying to do so as well. It's bringing back Swiss shares uh, to trade in London, so it's finding alternatives, um, and it certainly was very involved in EU regulations before. So I suspect there won't be so much divergence in in the near future. Um, so we'll probably, uh, if, if the EU wanted to, it could still find um, some equivalent. So I guess what the conclusion is that after four years of political paralysis, um, London hasn't really lost out. So there's still some space for London to stay a main player um, but I think that doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, New York and the Asian markets may well be the winners where um, London and the EU have suffered slight setbacks as a result of this Brexit financial services um, decisions. 
Well, I hope you're right about London, Victoria. I have a lot of fond memories uh, from my time there and, uh, and wish um, all the best of outcomes um, to the nation and the people. Uh, thanks for this discussion on Brexit and some of its implications and complications for the financial services industry. It's been great having you on the podcast, Victoria. Thank you, Joel. It's been my pleasure to join you today. And now it's time for This Week in History. Because of the devastating impact it has had on life during the past year, I cannot avoid mentioning that one year ago this week, on March 11th, COVID-19 was officially declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. But as we look across time, I'd prefer to dwell for a moment on an event that occurred 146 years ago, on March 10th, 1876, that has had an enduring positive impact on society across the globe. On that day, Alexander Graham Bell successfully completed the very first telephone conversation when he called from his laboratory in Boston, Massachusetts to his assistant Thomas Watson in the next room and said, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Those nine words launched a race to the patent office and the creation of what would become a global telecommunications network. It's hard to imagine life today without the telephone and the evolution of communications technology that has followed it. And of course, today we have not only telephone and mobile phone capability, but video conferencing as well. Interestingly, these technological advances have been instrumental in helping us deal with the stay-at-home orders and social distancing necessitated by the pandemic. So presented with a choice, I gladly pick the telephone and its progeny over COVID-19 for this week in history. Until next time, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.